Um, our church is committed to planted churches, if you guys uh, don't know that. Um, we're not um, expecting this to be the last one that we do. We want to do this again and again because we believe it is vital for us as a church to uh, extend what God is doing into other areas, into new communities. If you guys didn't know this, um, the church in America is in a slow decline. The church is no longer gaining ground, it's losing ground in the United States. More churches are closing their doors than opening their doors. And so we want to be a church that, that goes in and helps churches not to close their doors and to put new churches in communities, and that's what's happening in Texas. It seems like the culture is viewing the church in more of a negative light as year after year after year goes on. We're losing ground. And it causes me to ask the question, why is it? Why is the church being viewed as negative? Why is the church losing ground in our community and our culture? There are obviously many, many reasons for this. But I think there's one that stands out to me from my own personal experience. When I go out and about and I ask people and I have conversations, why is it that you don't go to church? Or where are you going to church to say, oh, I used to go here, but I don't go there anymore. When I have these conversations with people, people, I get similar answers almost every time I talk to people about why it is that they're not going to church or why they stopped going to church. And it goes something like this, typically. I did go to church, but the pastor had a moral failure. I thought about going to church, but my neighbor is a Christian, and if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, I don't really want to be a part of that. I grew up going to church but my, with my family, but after watching the hypocrisy of my parents for years and years, why would I want to go? Christians are just as mean, just as jealous, just as bitter, just as rude, angry, talk behind each other's backs, and families are ruined just like everybody else in the world. What makes them any different? In my experience, the number one reason why people aren't in churches is not because they don't like the message that the church teaches, but it's because of the people that sit in the seat week after week that hear that message and whose lives look exactly like the world's. Now, this is obviously a general statement. Obviously, not everybody in the United States who's a Christian is a blazing example of hypocrisy. We know that to be true. But I think we all know people who have made statements like that about the church. That the church is full of people who live inconsistent lives according to what they say. It's true that the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is a stumbling block. The gospel itself is a stumbling block. And the reason why it's difficult for people to come to Jesus is because Jesus is a stumbling block. Jesus is difficult to love and submit to if you love and submit to your sin on a regular basis. If what you're used to doing is loving and submitting to your sin, then when you get to Jesus, well, it's going to be really hard to submit to him. But many people cannot get to Jesus as a stumbling block because before they can get to him, they're stumbling over you. Is that a statement true for you this morning? Is that the real reason why your coworker or your family member or your friend or your hairstylist or your classmate or your roommate or your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter is not willing to hear the message of the Bible, of the gospel? Because before they can get to it, they're stumbling over you. Are you a barrier to that? 
I hope that our collective cry is, may it never be. May it never be that we are the stumbling block that's causing people not to be able to get to hear the gospel. But at the same time, I I think we all know to one degree or another that that's true for us. That there's a part of us that is causing other people to stumble. Obviously, we can't be perfect. Sooner or later, later, we are going to stumble. But here's the question I have for you. Are you doing absolutely everything in your power and through the power of the Holy Spirit, doing everything you can not to stumble in your walk? Not to stumble so that you don't trip up all those that are running behind you and those that are watching you from the sideline. Are you doing everything in your power not to stumble? At the heart of Ephesians chapter 4 is that idea. This idea is of whether we are living a consistent Christian life according to what God has called us to do. So if you turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4, we're going to stick in Ephesians 4 the whole time, so we're not going to be flipping around a bunch today. Ephesians uh, 4, the passage that we're going to be in today, is really wrestling with example after example of what it looks like, some practical examples of what it looks like to live a Christian life. But before we can get there, we've got to do some foundation work to be able to build this frame upon that we need to see. So Ephesians 4 verse 1 is the foundation verse of the entire uh, chapter of Ephesians 4 and really the whole application section from 4 through 6. So Ephesians 4 1 says this. It says, I, Paul, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He implores us to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling that we've been called. And that really is the thrust of all of chapter 4 and the rest of Ephesians from 4 to 6. But before that, in chapters 1 through 3, we have um, the reason why it's so important. What is the reason why it's so important that Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? What's the calling? Well, it's this. The reason why is because of this. Because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because you have been adopted as children and heirs of God through Christ. Because you have been redeemed, forgiven, lavished upon. Because you who were once dead in your trespasses are now made alive together with Christ. Because of God's rich mercy, his great love, his amazing grace. You are no longer considered children of wrath. Because by grace you have been saved through faith. Because you were once separated, now you're brought near. Because now you are considered fellow citizens and heirs of Christ in the household of God. Because now you are able to be filled with the fullness of God. Because of all this and more, now Paul says, I ask you. No, I challenge you. No, I beg you. No, he demands of us. I urge you. I implore you that you walk in a manner worthy of that. Of that calling. And that's not just Paul's call to the Ephesians, to those at the church in Ephesus. It's God's demand of us all in this church too. The demand of our God is that because of what he has done for us, that we now live a life worthy of that calling. Now, there should be a stirring in your hearts that's thinking this. How, God, how can my life ever be worthy of all of that? How can my life ever be worthy of that great love that you've had for us? Even if I give it all, that's not enough. 
How do I live a life worthy of what you have done for me? Do you want to know the answer to that question that so many people that call themselves Christians fail to understand? It's actually quite simple. The answer is, you give it all. You keep nothing. It's all His. All of it. Your love, your devotion, your heart, your thoughts, your desires, your actions, your job, your money, your house, your car, your boat, your living room, your favorite armchair, your hopes and your dreams, your passions, your hobbies, your family, your time, your energy, your effort, your service, your youth, your golden years, your retirement years, your body, your breath, your very life is now His. You give it all to Him. And in giving it all, you barely scrape the surface of what is due to Him. Of what He is worthy of. But you give it all anyway. You give Him all. All of you in exchange for all of Him. That's how it works. That's the heart of what it means to be saved. All of you in exchange for all of Him. Now, church, if we don't understand this basic principle, how can we ever expect to grow in our walk with the Lord? How can we ever expect to walk as a church together towards what God is calling us to do? If you haven't understood that, and if you need to make that transaction and that trade, do it, all of you, in exchange for all of Him. Now, that is the reason why the reason why, the importance of why we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which he has called us. That's the reason, the, the basic why. But what does it mean to walk? What does it actually mean to walk? What's that word mean? What's the idea mean? Well, the biblical idea of walking is this. It's the total orientation of self, of the entirety of yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, walking implies direction. It implies orientation. It implies coordination, cadence, rhythm, pattern, intention. So to walk implies this intentional forward direction, a direction that you're going in. The biblical idea of walking is the idea of the direction or the path of the totality of who you are. All of you now is directed in an area. In Ephesians, we're actually given the options for which direction you can go. If it's the path or direction that you go, then what are the directions that we have offered to us? Well, it actually makes it quite clear. From the passage that Mark taught on last week, we actually have one of those options that's laid out for us. Look, look at Ephesians 4.17. It says, So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, and so on and so on. So there's a direction that is the way the Gentiles go or the way the world goes that it is away from God in the futility of their minds, darkened in their hearts. In verses 22 through 24, they lay out the two options for us again. Paul says that there's this old pattern of life that is represented by the old self that you're to put off, and then there's this new pattern of life that's represented by the new self that you're to put on. Then we have the opposite of what happens in 4.17 and 5. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Then again in Ephesians 5.15 we have two paths clearly delineated. 
Ephesians 5.15 says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So if we understand this idea of walking as descriptive of the orientation or direction either towards God or away from him. Those are our options. Either towards God or towards the world. Those are our only two options. So as I said, to walk is descriptive of this total orientation of the self. Paul says to put off the old self and to put on the new self. So what does the self mean? What is the self? Now, some people attempt to answer this question by saying, well, you are what you do. Okay? You are what you do. And that's true. That is true. You are what you do. But that answer is insufficient. There's more to who you are than just what you do. There's more to walking than just what you do. What makes you you and what makes me me is more than just what we do. It's also what we think and what we feel. That makes up the entirety of self. So in some sense, this is uh, akin to what is uh, considered the self is similar to what uh, theology terms call the soul. The soul of a person has three components or what is typically called faculties, three abilities or faculties within the human soul that give us the ability to think, feel, and do. And they're referred to as the intellect, the will, and the affections. So we have a body that is housed our immaterial soul that has this ability to think and to feel and to act upon those things. So the intellect, the will, and the affections, you can understand it this way. You can understand it as, uh, in other words, the, the soul has this ability or the capacity, the functions of your thoughts, your desires, and your actions. Your head, your heart, and your hands. Your brain, your gut, and your drive. Within the soul, we have the capacity to be able to think, feel, and do. If you need proof of this, it's actually in the passage we covered last week again. In Ephesians 4, 17-24, you see all three of these components of the person that is oriented in the wrong direction. The Gentiles are walking in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, because of the hardness of their hearts. They become calloused in their desires. They've been given over to every type of practice or function of the will. So all three aspects of, of the soul or the self are included in our previous passage. And all three of those aspects of the human person are influenced simultaneously. They all influence one another. Your head influences your heart, which influences your actions, but your, your, your heart actually also influences your head and influences your actions. They all work together simultaneously. One is not stronger than the other. They all kind of work together. So to summarize this basic idea, it's, because of what God has done for us in Christ, we are to give all of us in exchange for all of him. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called. Our walk is then the direction or orientation of our entire self. The self is the culmination of not just what we do, but what we think and what we feel, our thoughts, our desires. Therefore, in our thinking and in our doing and in our feeling, we need to be fully oriented towards God. That's what it means to walk. The entirety of self is oriented towards God, not away from him. So that was the introduction. So now if you look at Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, let me read these for us. 
It says, therefore. That was, that was the therefore, just so you know. That whole time was the therefore. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has also forgiven you. So our passage today starts with this basic statement, simple but yet challenging, therefore laying aside falsehood. Okay? The way the ESV reads this is having put away falsehood. This idea of putting off, just like the old self. Put away falsehood. The NIV says it, therefore, let, or, therefore each of you must put off falsehood. That's actually a better translation because this is a command that is given. This is a command that is given that we must, we are commanded and demanded that we must put off falsehood. Now this can mean simply do not lie. It's possible that this just means do not lie, but I think Paul is implying more in saying falsehood. He could have said lie, but he said falsehood in, in particular. He says put off falsehood. Remember, Paul's given us two paths, the old self, the new self, the unwise and the wise. I think what he's doing here is he's adding an additional category of false and true. There's a false way of living, a false way of going about your life, a false way of thinking, a false way of believing, a false way of doing And then there's a true way. What are the marks of the false way and what are the marks of the true way? And that's what he gets into. So I think Paul is additionally categorizing the two different options or orientations that we can go down with falsehood and truth. We are to lay down the path of falsehood and take up the path of truth. So you can walk in a false manner according to your own ways given to you by the world or you can live in a true way, true manner, according to God's ways given to you by the word. Those are your two options. And before we look at what this looks like in practice, there's a really important part of this, which is what the goal of each one of these applications are. What is the goal of laying off the old self in these particular practices and putting on the new self? What's the goal? And the goal is very clear. It is to build up the body of Christ in unity. It's not just for your individual good, it's for, the individu- it's for the good of the entire body. The idea of unity is strong in the book of Ephesians, especially in this application section. We are to be unified together so that we can grow up together in Christ. So the vices that Paul gives that we put off are detrimental to community life, while the virtues that Paul gives help build up the body of Christ. That's the way that this works. So again, each exhortation that we're given, each command that we're given here is a practical application in order to bring consistency and unity within the body of Christ for the building up of itself in love. That's what this is about. So then what does this look like? 
we need a practical example of what this looks like to put off the old self, don't go down that path, put on the new self, go down this path. What does this look like? Give me some examples. And that's what Paul does. What does it look like to lay down the path of lying and take up the path of truth? What does it look like? What things should we avoid? What things should we seek in order to build up the body of Christ to live consistent Christian lives in unity? Well, our passage gives us four very specific things. Things we are to put off and things we are to put on. And we have those for you. I have them all listed here for you. We are to put off one aspect or one vice and we are to put on this virtue in order to build ourselves up as a community that is honoring of Christ and worthy of our calling. And there they are. So each set is given as a juxtaposition between a virtue and a vice. A false direction and a true direction. The first of these is exhortations is about speaking truthfully. Each one of us is to speak truthfully with our neighbor. So let's look at this first one, lying versus truthfulness at Ephesians 4.25. It says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The point here is, is obvious, but it's absolutely necessary. Because our propensity to lie as sinful people is just scary. It is scary how easy it is for us to lie. We do it in order to cover ourselves, to justify our behavior or our action. We do it to deceive others for our own benefit. We do it to escape punishment or potential pain. We know it's wrong. We know it only hurts those we lie to. We know it erodes the foundation of trust that we have with those we're in relationship with, and yet we do it anyway. Honesty with one another, truth-telling is essential and to creating this idea of mutual trust in the community of God. It is foundational to the life of the community of believers in the church. Without trust, how can a relationship stand, let alone be healthy enough and grow. I want you to think of it this way. Who here thinks that you uh, can go home after church today and consistently start lying to your spouse and in doing so, you'd be building a great foundation of mutual trust for you to grow in your relationship? No one. No one thinks that because it's obvious to us. There's no trust in a relationship, then how can it grow? How can it be healthy? Well, the marriage relationship is where two separate people become one flesh. And so that foundation of trust must be built for that one flesh to function and grow properly. Well, the church is lots of separate entities coming together into one body underneath the headship of Christ. So for that body to grow in the way that it needs to, to function in the way that it needs to, it must have also that foundation of trust that is built for it to grow up, build itself up in love. Now remember, this is referring to a pattern of life. This is a pattern that we need to adopt. It's not a one-time thing. It's, this is a pattern, a consistent pattern of honesty and truth-telling that is characteristic of our church. We, as a church, should work to cultivate the practice of truth-telling to one another for our own benefit and for the benefit of all of us together. Now, Paul's second exhortation that he gives is, he says to put off uncontrolled anger and to put on controlled anger. So look at Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The second of Paul's exhortations is a warning against the dangers of anger. But wait, 
Paul doesn't say, don't be angry here. He says, be angry. Is Paul here commanding us to be angry? Yes, actually he is. But with some huge clarifications and caveats. Some huge ones. It appears here that, that Paul is, doesn't see anger as a bad emotion. He actually sees it as an appropriate, maybe even as a useful and necessary emotion within the church. But Doug, you ask, I thought anger was a sin. Isn't anger a sin? Isn't it a sin to be angry? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. It depends on what you're angry about and how you deal with that anger. That's what makes it a sin or not a sin, good or bad. Let me explain it this way. God is a God of love, peace, patience, and mercy, correct? Yet, Scripture says that God is provoked to anger against those, against his own people when they sin against him. Is God wrong or sinful in his anger? No. Jesus, the exact representation of God on earth, literally God in flesh, was full of compassion for the sinner. He healed the sick, he forgave sin, correct? But he also was stirred to anger when his people turned the temple of God into a place of profit where they abused the poor in order to line their own pockets. Look at Mark 3.5 on the screen. Jesus, in another confrontation with the Pharisees, as is typical, says, after looking at them, the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So why is it okay that Jesus is angry? Why is it okay that he feels this emotion of anger? Well, anger as a feeling or emotion is not inherently good or bad. You're, if your anger is kindled against sin, I would say your anger is good. If your anger is kindled when someone pulls in front of you on the freeway and gets in your lane and you're in a hurry, I would say that's very bad. It depends on what you are angry about. And then it depends on what you do with that anger. So the object of your anger and, what you, and how you deal with that anger is what determines whether it's good or bad. So... What then should we be angry about? What is Paul commanding us to be angry about? We should be angry over sin in the community of God. That's what we should be angry about. As a church, we probably don't get angry enough when we see sin in the church and when we ourselves sin. We tend to ignore it, sweep it under the rug, Minimalize it, trivialize it, when we should be angry at it. Paul tells us that to be angry in the right way, over the right things, is to be angry over sin, but to be careful in being angry over sin, not to sin. He says, be careful, be angry, but do not sin. Or in other words, be angry over the, the right things. Don't be angry over the wrong things, like injured pride and envy and, and spite but don't let anger persist for too long in any case. This is what Paul means when he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Well, Paul is not saying, don't be angry at night. Okay, That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, don't let your anger, even if it's over a good thing, like being angry at sin, persist for too long. Because the emotion of anger is so powerful that 
the devil can use that anger if you nurse it for an opportunity to lead you astray. That's what it means to give an opportunity to Satan is what it says there. Listen to how one commentator said this. He said, any unchecked and uncontrolled behavior or feeling can eventually yield a place to the enemy to further his goals of stopping the growth process in the people of God. Ultimately, for the community of God to be unified, we must be angry over sin, but not enough to lead us into our own sin. That's what Paul's saying. We need to be angry over sin, but not enough. Don't harbor or nurse that sin long enough to where it leads you into your own sin or gives Satan an opportunity. Paul's next exhortation is about putting off stealing and putting on hard work. So he says in verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will be able to share with the one who has need. So in place of theft, Paul is saying that we are to work hard, but for the explicit purpose of being able to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. I think we all know inherently that stealing is bad. We're not confused by that. But Paul gives a a specific reason that I think is really good for us to hear. It's, It's not just enough to say, work hard. We need to know why we work hard. What's the purpose for us to work hard? Now, notice it's not so that we just won't steal, nor is it so that we can just provide for ourselves and our families, which Paul does commend in other passages. He said it's good for you to provide for yourselves and your family. That's not a bad thing. But the purpose of hard work goes beyond providing just food and shelter for you and your family. Paul emphasizes that the main motivation should be to help meet the material needs of those in the church. Those in the Christian community. How often do you think of your job as a God-given means to take care of the people in this church that have needs? Remember, all of you in exchange for all of him. That's how this works. It's all supposed to be his and it all is his. So the money you make from your job, it's not your money. It's his. So if he says to give it to those that are in the church, you do it. That's his money. All of you in exchange for all of him. That's how it works. So we're not supposed to lie to one another but speak truth with one another. We're to be in control of our anger over sin but don't let it persist for long. And we're to work hard in order to be able to give to those in the church. All of these things are to build up the church to let the church function in the way that it's supposed to function. Paul's fourth exhortation is about believers' speech to one another. He says in verses 29 and 30, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I don't think I need to explain how words can have the ability to tear down or build up. On the one hand, it's probably true that the deepest wounds you have in your life are from someone speaking words to you. It's also probably true, on the other hand, that words spoken at the right time can renew our spirits. They can kindle deep feelings of love or the sweetest of affections. And so, in the church, we need to understand how to use our words in order to build up the community life of the church. We need to use our words for others' edification or building up and encouragement. That's how we are supposed to use our words. So when we see a brother and sister in Christ who is downcast in their spirit, we should use our words to encourage them, to build them up. 
when we see a brother and sister in Christ who is grieving over the loss of someone or something, we should encourage them with words of comfort. When we see a brother and sister in Christ who is joyful for what God is doing in their life, we need to encourage them to remain in that joy with our words. Paul tells us what we should not do or the position we should cast off is unwholesome talk. That word literally means rotten or putrid. Rotten or putrid. It's the same word used for diseased lungs, rancid fish, withered flowers, and rotten fruit. One commentator said this. I, I love the way this is said. said. The image Paul is using here suggests that he wants believers to develop a gag reflex to unhealthy ways of talking that will repulse us as the church to cause us to clean up what we say when we speak to one another. And then it says our words need to be used to fit the need of the moment, which means that we must be attuned and attentive to what other people in this church are going through in order to be able to speak into their lives, which means we must know each other. We must know one another to be able to speak into one another's lives, to know what we're going through. I think it also implies that there's an openness and honesty that's expressed in believers, where it's okay to share what's going on and how you feel, what's going, going on in your life. How can we speak into the moment if those in the church are shielding or literally hiding their true feelings behind this facade of everything's great? We know that not to be true in life. You know, I actually tried this once at church uh, when I first became a believer. I was sitting in, in, in the front of the church in a chair before service was about to start and, and, and I was just sitting there and an older lady walked up to me, came and she shook my hand and she said, how are you doing? And I looked at her and I said, not great. I was having a hard week. It was a hard day. I was, I was a little depressed, I was anxious. I felt lonely, just discouraged overall is how I felt. As a new believer, there were some things going on that were challenging for me. And I felt discouraged. And so I was honest and I said, I'm not doing great. You know what she said to me? She looked at me and she said, okay. And then she went back and sat down in her seat. You know, that lady missed her opportunity. She wasn't prepared to speak a word of encouragement as the moment arose. And she missed her opportunity to speak a word of encouragement to a new believer that needed to hear it. We need to be able to be open with one another to be honest with one another, and to be prepared as the moment arises to speak those truths into each other's lives. We need to be extending grace through our words. That's also what it says. To be attentive to those who are around you, speak timely, well-spoken words in difficult situations. We need to be good at praying with one another in the midst of trouble, calling upon the one who has the power to change things to speak into a situation. We need to be a community of people who shows grace in everything that we say. Because it says, when we don't, we grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. When we don't, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul says, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice this doesn't say, don't sin against the Holy Spirit of God or grieve the Holy Spirit of God for when he does, he departs from you. He says, no, the Holy Spirit is your seal of your inheritance in Christ. It is a guarantee of that. 
And the Holy Spirit you're sealed with for the day of redemption is not going to depart from you, but he resides within you. So since he resides within you, do not grieve him by your sin. This is our motivation to not do this kind of speak with one another, where we tear people down. It says we should do this so we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, what Paul does next is he actually shifts from these very specific examples to just this one great general example. And he does it in verse 31 and 32. In 31 it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, if you read that just right away, you might just think, oh, this is just a random like, list of things I can't do. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it doesn't have any connection with one another. But you'd be missing the point here if you thought that. This is actually a progression. This is a progression of a, a heart disposition or a hard-heartedness that leads to abusive talk. That's what's being communicated here. I'll explain it this way. The word bitterness that's being used, it's referring to hard-heartedness that harbors resentment from the past. A hard-heartedness that harbors resentment from the past. This is the first step of this downward spiral of sin. I've known people that have harbored hard-heartedness, bitterness in their hearts for years in the church, and that should not be allowed. So this hard-hearted resentment then turns into anger or wrath, is what it says. Wrath really is just uncontrolled anger. Then that anger comes out in clamor, which another way of saying the word clamor is literally yelling or screaming. And then the progression ultimately leads to slander or malicious talk, as some translate it. Or in other words, any kind of speech that is intended to be harmful or abusive. So the progression literally goes like this. You're bitter, you're hard-hearted and harboring resentment in your heart, which causes you to be angry to the point of rage, so you start screaming at others in order to abuse them and harm that person you speak to. So Paul is saying this progression here is not just bad, it's exceedingly destructive in the community life of the church. This type of malicious behavior should never be allowed in the church. Instead, the church should do what verse 32 says. Verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Instead of bitter, angry heart that spews out hateful comments in order to hurt others, we should have tender hearts. Tender hearts that are kind to each other, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also forgiving when they're offended. Forgiving when they're offended. As believers, when we are offended, which you will be offended as a believer, we should be quick to forgive. But you're you're saying, why, Doug? You don't know what that person did to me. That person was mean to me. You don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. You know, they hurt me. They were rude to me the last time they talked to me. They forgot to say hi to me this morning when I came in the church. They made a comment to me joking, but I took it personally, and I'm offended. Why should I forgive them? The answer is, because Jesus has forgiven you. If you ever think that someone has done something to offend you that is beyond forgiveness, you need to think of what you have done to offend God. And realize that Jesus has forgiven you of every offense that you have done. Every single one. And so, therefore, when someone offends you, you should be quick to forgive. That is the attitude that we should have. 
So, in summary, what Paul is saying here, and what God has for us this morning, is simply this. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Looking to what God has done for us in Jesus, we realize that we have, that nothing we could ever offer God would be worthy of Him. So we give Him everything instead. All of us in exchange for all of Him. The total orientation of our lives is now directed towards God. Our thoughts, our desires, our actions are submitted to Him and to Him alone. We must now be active in putting off that old self and putting on that new self. We must abandon the false ways of living and take up truthful living. We need to put off lying false speech and speak the truth to one another. We must be angry over sin in the community of Christ, but not angry enough to give the opportunity to a devil to sin. We must forsake stealing and instead work hard for the explicit purpose of giving to those that are in need in the church. We must know and be attentive to those in our church so that we may be able to speak in a way that edifies and builds up and extend grace in the moment as it arises. And we must never harbor bitterness, but instead we must be quick to forgive, just as Jesus has forgiven us. So church, let each one of us continue to put off that old self with its false ideas, desires, and actions, and and take up this new self. Let us walk in love just as Christ Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have forgiven us of all of our transgressions even though we did nothing to deserve it. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've called us. Help us to do all the things that you prescribed for us here this morning so that we could build up this body in a way that honors you and glorifies you. Give us all strength and diligence and power to work towards these things in the power of your spirit. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.